Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity once again to come before your word and to receive and to learn. We invite you, Spirit of the living God, to speak to our hearts. We ask you, Holy Spirit, make this word plain to us today. Help us to understand what we're reading on the pages of Scripture today, Lord. Help me to articulate and to speak as I ought to speak, Father God, as the oracles of God, Lord. I pray that you would grant wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you today to these, your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let the entrance of your word bring light and clear confusion, Father God. We open our hearts to you. We make ourselves available. We give you our attention this morning, Lord, and we ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Let's make our confession of faith together. Thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you, my heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I am growing in the things of God. Amen. We believe that that is true. Uh, quick recap, we talked a little bit about the book of Colossians two weeks ago in getting started. We went through the first chapter, and, uh, and I tried to unpack for you a little bit of information about the city of Colossae, about the writing of the book of Colossians. This was one of the books that Paul wrote uh, while he was imprisoned in Rome, along with Ephesians and Philippians. Um, and uh, as I have researched it and understood it, the, uh, the same person who delivered this letter to the church at Colossae delivered the letter to the Ephesians, delivered the letter to the Laodiceans, which we don't have a copy of that in Scripture. Uh, that's one of those things when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord, what was in the letter to the Laodiceans? Because it, it doesn't end up making its way into Scripture. But um, this was, for all intents and purposes, a small and seemingly insignificant church in a small and seemingly insignificant town in Asia Minor. This, this town of Colossae was a, a, in kind of a cluster in a little group of towns uh, in what was called the Lycene Valley, which was in Western, in today's world. Oh, there's some pictures of it. Uh, isn't it beautiful? It is, this is in western Turkey. If you were to look at it on the map today, you could see that it was in western Turkey. And this is a valley called the Lycine Valley. Uh, there you go. Uh, you can see it on the map there. This valley had three main cities in it. One was Colossae. The second was a city called Laodicea. And the third was a city called Hierapolis. Uh, the pastor of the church in Colossians, or in the church in Colossae, was a man named Epaphras. He was a man who was a student of Paul and had a hand in starting this church. Paul did not start the church in Colossae uh, as, he, as he did in Ephesians, as he did in other places, plant these churches. Uh, he didn't actually plant the church in Colossae. Someone else did. And um, the uh, young man Epaphras came and was raised up in that church and became the pastor of that church. Um, and, and Epaphras is mentioned multiple times throughout Paul's writings as uh, somebody that Paul is encouraging and strengthening and building up and kind of bragging on. 
Uh, you'll see at the end of this letter, he brags on Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras loves you so much that he's praying for you, and he's praying to win all three of those cities for Jesus. So I think it's so cool that, that Paul, even though this city and this church seem small and minuscule and out of the way, packed in some valley somewhere. Uh, Paul, because of Epaphras, because this man had such a desire to win this Lycene Valley to Jesus, uh, Paul writes multiple letters in the New Testament where he's mentioned and where he is encouraged and strengthened. And so it's just a cool story about a cool little church that was making a big difference in the place that they were in. And I said to you a couple weeks ago, I think that's significant because God loves the not just the big church, but he loves the little churches. He doesn't just love, you know, the, your favorite uh, guy on television, girl on television who's doing something, you know, big, quote unquote, big for God. He's also invested and cares about little churches dotted throughout the, you know, the countryside that are doing work for the kingdom of God. God is invested in you and in me. Amen? Can you say amen to that? God is invested in you. He's invested in me. This might not seem like the biggest building in the world. Guess what? It's not. But you know what? God's invested. His presence is here. Amen? He knows we're here. You might, you might think the world has forgotten about you, but God knows exactly where you are because he's, he's got a vested interest in you. And I think that's one of the things that's so, that's so pronounced to me as I read the book of Colossians is that Jesus himself, the head of the church, is, is interested in me and in my life because he was interested in these Colossian people and in their lives. Amen? So um, I said to you that in other, in other epistles, this book of Colossians is kind of a sister book to the book of Ephesians, and, and there's a lot of the same things are covered in both books, but with a slightly different perspective. Paul addresses the same concepts and the same ideas, but from a different angle. In Ephesians, we see the church of the Lord Jesus. In Colossians, we see the Lord of the church. Does that make sense? In, in Ephesians, we see the church of the Lord. In, in, in Colossians, we see the Lord of the church. This book is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every verse is pointing to him. It's revealing who he is. And so um, that is encouraging and exciting as we dive into these chapters to remember that we're seeing, we're literally seeing Jesus on every page here. So let's look at chapter 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and, um, and then I'm going to come back and make some comments. So stick with me. It's 23 verses long, but just stick with me for a moment, and we'll, uh, we'll get where we need to go. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they would know the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and, as of, and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We'll come back to that here in just a few moments. Verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. 
For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy An empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians? So much of this sounds like Ephesians 1 and 2. Let's keep going. Verse 13, we're about halfway there. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Praise God. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into these things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. And that, that, you know who, who he's talking about there, right? That's Jesus. Not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore... If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But there's a lot of goodies in there, man. There's a lot of nuggets. As I've said to you before, one of the challenges about preaching a book like this, chapter by chapter, is that you have to take a 30,000-foot view. You have to take like this high-level high approach. I wish that I could just go verse by verse and preach every nuance of it to you. But... I would take 10, you know, I'd take 23 weeks to do that just with this chapter. There's 23 verses. I'd love to take a verse a Sunday, but that would take quite a bit of time. So let's look through this passage and, and, and talk about some of the things that Paul is addressing here. It's, um, it's a little bit wordy. It's a little bit heady, if you understand what I mean by that. It's a little heady. Uh, particularly the beginning here. But when you understand what he's addressing, 
then it starts to make sense to you. So one of the things that helps us to understand Scripture is to understand the context in which the Scripture was written, right? Have you ever, have you ever quoted a movie line to someone that you thought was hilarious and they didn't think it was funny? Yeah? I remember I was working at the Inn at Crestwood, and my, one of my favorite movies is Dumb and Dumber. It's just one of the best movies of all time. And I quoted some Dumb and Dumber lines to my coworkers who were a solid 15 years younger than me. And they looked at me like I had three heads. They're like, what is that? And I said, come on, guys, Dumb and Dumber. And they're like, what? Like, I said, Dumb and Dumber is the, the single greatest comedy of all time. And they had never seen it. And I realized they, while I thought that was hilarious, because it is, they didn't have any context for it. And because they hadn't seen the movie, they had no context. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. It's easy to read an epistle like this without having contextual understanding and, and it go over our heads. When we understand what Paul was addressing in this passage, it will help us to wrap our minds around it. Firstly, he's addressing a heresy that had invaded this Lycene Valley, and that was the heresy of Gnosticism. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gnosticism before, but it was, it's, a, it's a way of thinking, it's a worldview, it's a pattern of belief, and basically, Gnosticism does a couple of things. Uh, the first and kind of most pronounced thing is that Gnosticism exalts uh, it, it's what you would consider to be hyper-spirituality. Gnosticism is hyper-spirituality. Everything is a divine secret. Everything is, you know, every, all the keys to life are somehow secretive and mysterious, and there's only a few people who really have an understanding of what's really going on. That's how Gnosticism works. There's a handful of enlightened people that have, really have it all together, and everybody else is just common peasants, and they don't understand anything. So it's a hyper-spiritualization, it's an exaltation of spiritualism, uh, so that they lived with the idea that, that nothing that happened in the natural, carnal world was of any value, you know. So if you, um, if you had a really good meal and you felt good after that meal, that doesn't matter. That's, that's of no importance. That's of no value. You shouldn't put any con confidence in any of that. Everything is super hyper-spiritual, and the flesh doesn't even matter. Nothing in this world is of any importance. That was kind of what Gnosticism really taught. And uh, if you were going to be somebody important, you were going to have to have some real spiritual insights. You were going to have to have your head wrapped around mysticism and this idea of uh, everything being a secret wisdom. Is that making sense to you this morning? That's what Gnosticism was and continues to be to this day. And there's more to it than that, but that's just kind of a quick idea of Gnosticism. Well, Paul is dealing with Gnosticism because Gnosticism had entered into the Lycene Valley and was starting to infiltrate the church in Hierapolis and Laodicea and in Colossae. And so Paul wants to safeguard them as a, as a true father would. He wants to come and wrap his arms around these people and say, wait a minute, let me teach you what's really going on so that you don't become a victim to this doctrine that's trying to work its way into the church called Gnosticism. The second thing Paul was trying to deal with in this book was extreme Judaism. 
So you had these two competing ideas that were being peddled through these churches at this time. Gnosticism, which we just talked about, and extreme Judaism. You had people from uh, Jerusalem coming up into Asia Minor, into these churches, and they were saying, you know, it's great that you trust in Jesus. It's great that he's the Lord of your life. That's awesome. Now you need to circumcise yourself. Now you need to start to keep the Jewish calendar. See, it's okay. We'll, we'll agree with you. Jesus is Lord, fine. If you want to make him Lord of your life, that's great. Now what we want you to do is start to obey the principles of Judaism. We want you to start to obey all the feasts and all the regulations. We want you to basically become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. In other words, what Jesus did for you on the cross wasn't enough. You see, either of those views, either Gnosticism or extreme Judaism, either one of them falls short because it takes the emphasis off of Jesus. You follow me? It takes the emphasis off of Jesus. In Judaism, it's all about what you can do. In Gnosticism, it's all about what you know and what you've attained to, that you have some super spiritual secret wisdom. In Judaism, it's Everything that I can do to keep the Hebrew calendar and to make sure I don't eat shrimp and, you know, make sure I'm kosher and do this and that and the other thing. Not, none of that has its root in Jesus. None of that is looking and focused on what Jesus has done. And so Paul, in, his, in this book, is addressing both of those realities, and we see that a lot in chapter 2. So let's look at a few of these verses in chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1 again, and we'll just read the first two verses here. I want you to know that I have a great conflict for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. What is your conflict, Paul? What is it that you want them to understand? Well, he wants, wants, first of all, that their hearts may be encouraged. So Paul obviously knew that there was some discouragement that, that was happening, that people's hearts were being Uh, burdened by this false teaching. Secondly, he wants them to be knit together in love, so he must understand that there's some strife going on, that people aren't relating to each other the way that they should. And then he wants them to attain all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Boy, that's a mouthful. What do we do with that? Attain all the riches of the full assurance of understanding the, the key to that is found in the next phrase, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Verse 3, if you'd look at that. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This, these, these two verses, the second half of verse 2 and, the, and, and all of verse 3, are directly aimed at that issue of Gnosticism that we talked about. Look at verse 2 again. That you, would come to, that you would attain all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. It's almost like Paul is baiting them to bite down on what he's about to say. Verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, in Gnosticism... These people were being conditioned to think that there was some secret revelation that they had not yet gotten. And what he's saying at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 is that all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you're seeking after, they're found in one man. 
and his name's Jesus. Look at, look at verse 2 again, the very last line. Both of the, you, the he, he wants them to have the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. In other words, there is no special secret out there that is apart from Jesus. There is no special divine revelation that you're going to attain to one day and become some enlightened individual. No, the, 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 you've already got everything that you need in the person of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Now this I say lest any, verse 4, this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. You see, he said, I just said that so that you won't be deceived with persuasive words. These Gnostics were coming in with their clever doctrine, trying to get them to attain to some hyper-spiritual level of revelation. And they, Paul's saying, listen, that doesn't even exist. You don't need to try to do that. Just fall in love with Jesus. Have an encounter with Jesus. And when you do, you've got Got everything that you need. You got all the wisdom and the revelation that you could ever possibly want. It's in him. And he goes down in verse 9. We'll get there in a moment, but he says, Don't you understand that in Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead? Why are you over here seeking some kind of pseudo hyper spirituality and some secret wisdom? He said, Every bit of God dwells in Jesus. Everything that makes God God is found in the person of Christ. Why are you seeking something else outside of him? You see? This I say, let's go back to verse 4. This I say, lest anybody should deceive you with persuasive words. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How did they, how did they receive Christ Jesus? Ephesians gives us a clue. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. How did, you re- how did you receive Jesus? By grace through faith, right? Grace made this beautiful thing called salvation available to you, and faith rose up in your heart, and you received it. Paul's saying in the same way that you receive Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, or so continue in him. The same The same pattern, if you will, that caused you to become a Christian is the same pattern that's going to keep you a Christian and is going to keep you moving in the direction God wants for your life. Don't go off to the left and to the right. Don't go off seeking Gnosticism, seeking some kind of special secret understanding. Don't go over here and try to perfect yourself in the flesh trying to follow what Judaism says. Stay right in the middle. You receive Jesus by grace through faith. Keep walking in him and keep living in him by grace through faith. You see that? He's, when we understand, Paul's trying to get these people out of these ditches that they're in. You know, you ever drive down a long country road and you see ditches on either side of the road? We got them all over our county. What happens when you hit a slick patch of ice and you end up in a ditch? Well, you're not moving anymore, are you? Paul wants to keep these people moving. He wants to keep them going in the direction that they should be going in. So he's saying, don't get in this ditch over here. Don't get in this ditch over here. Stay right down the middle of the line. How are you going to do that, Paul? Well, the same way you receive Jesus is the same way you should keep walking and living in him. By grace through faith. Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you. I think this is important to understand. I I have no problems with philosophy. I have no problems with 
you know, what, what happens in the realms of education. I have no problems with what happens in a lot of churches today. I do have a problem with philosophy cheating me out of something that God has for me, right? He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Be on guard for people that will come and whisper in your ear all kind of philosophies that are contrary to what God's revealed in his word. Oh, that's so important, guys. You think, oh, that's good for the Colossians. Yeah, it's good for you too. How many of you know there's a lot of philosophies out there? There's a lot of ideas floating around. There's people on YouTube every day talking to you about what they think is important. But if it's contrary to what God has revealed in the word of God to us, then you need to throw that junk away, man. Hello? There's all kinds of philosophy out there. We Listen, we have access to more information now than we ever have had in the history of humanity. I I can get more information on my phone than, than, than entire generations ever had available to them. And I can pull it up in two-tenths of a second on Google. Beware of making Google your God. Let Let me say that again so that you feel the weight of it. Beware of making Google your God. This book has the answer that you need for your question. The relationship that you have with Jesus is ultimately more valuable than any philosophy or vain teaching, than anything you're going to find out there. Beware. You're in an information-heavy age. I mean, if this was written to people in the first century, it's certainly valuable to us right now. Beware lest anyone cheat you through empty philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the, that's the important part. I don't have a problem with philosophy. I don't have a problem with men's traditions. I don't have a problem with the basic principles of the world, so long as they don't oppose what I know is according to Christ. You follow me? There are principles that I can learn in the world that will help me. But if they violate my relationship with God, if they work against what I know to be true from the word, then they're not worth holding on to. And you need to beware. Paul uses this word. It's not a, this is not a passive word. Beware. Heads up. Be looking for this stuff. The enemy is out like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The enemy is out there trying to whisper deceit into your mind. Be aware that that's happening. Amen. Don't be cheated by empty philosophy. Why, Paul? Because in him, that is in Christ, verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Everything that makes God God lives and abides in Christ. And Christ lives and abides in you. Verse 10, you are complete in him. 
Why would we look to philosophy? Why would we look to these, these practices in the world? Why would we look high and low and right and left to, to find more of God? out? Why would we look out there when everything that makes God God dwells in him and I'm in him and he's in me and I'm complete? See, he's, Paul's trying to bring correction to a doctrine that was infiltrating these people's thought life. They'd go to church and they'd hear a good message at church and then they'd leave church and they'd spend the rest of their week searching high and low, trying to find answers apart from God, apart from what they'd learned on Sunday. And Paul's saying, y'all are being deceived and you don't even realize it. I have, listen, this is super important for our generation. Because of what we have access to. Because at any moment in time, I can pull up a thousand opinions on the subject. And none of them might have anything to do with what the Word says about that subject. God's Word has to prevail in our hearts and in our minds if we're going to not get caught in a ditch. Now, in verse 11, he shifts gears... And he starts to deal with this idea of legalism, this extreme Judaism. So the first 10 verses, we're talking, you know, kind of dealing with this idea of Gnosticism. Now he shifts and he starts to deal with extreme Judaism and with legalism. And he basically is describing in verse, from verse 11 down through verse 14, he's describing what happened to us when we got saved. You know, circumcision was a big deal in the Jewish culture. It is to this day. And the reason, does anybody know why circumcision is a big deal to the Jews? Do you know what it represented? It represented that these people have a covenant with God. There was something physically different about them that that expressed the fact that they have a relationship and a covenant with God. It It was a practice that God instituted with Abraham. Started with Abraham, and since Abraham until this very moment, it has consistently been there in Judaism. And so, to the Jews, that's a big deal. You remember when David is standing before Goliath, and Goliath is, you know, screaming all of his obscenities and his words against the nation of Israel? What is, do you remember the question that David asks to Saul? He says, Who is this? uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. So David, you, you see, circumcision's a big either or for them. It's like either you, either you got a covenant with God, and we know, because we can tell you're circumcised, or you don't. And so Judaism here is, coming, is creeping into the Lycene Valley and is creeping into the church at Colossae, and Paul, having who is a Jew, having come from Judaism, says, wait a minute, guys, you don't know what you're messing with. You don't know what you're toying around with over here. He says, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Look at that. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What does that mean? It means that there is no visible outward sign that you have a covenant with God. Something far more valuable has happened. God circumcised your heart. 
God came and made an impression upon your heart that is completely internal. That's way more valuable than being outwardly circumcised. This, this idea, I wish I had more time to really dwell on this, but this idea of circumcision appears all through Paul's writing. A bunch in the book of Romans, a bunch in Galatians, because you have people who were non-Jews getting saved and now thinking, man, if, I'm, if this salvation's really going to mean something, I, I need to circumcise myself. And Paul's like, guys, don't you, don't you realize this message of the cross has nothing to do with the outward? It has everything to do with what God is doing in your heart? Amen. Has nothing to do with the outward man has everything to do with God writing his law in your heart. Has everything to do with what Christ has done on the inside. That's why he says you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And now verse 14, he concludes this little thought having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's one of the most victorious verses in the whole of the New Testament. Jesus wiped out the handwriting of requirements. What, what does that mean? What are the handwriting of requirements? It is the notice of death or excuse me, the notice of debt, the demands of sin. I like the way the New Living Translation reads. He says it, it says that he wiped out the note of debt. Do you realize that when you were born, you had, a, you had a price tag around your neck and there was a heavy debt called sin that was on your life that you could never repay? If you, if you, were, to, if you were to look at the, the check register of your life, there was this, in, in, the, in the expenses column, there was a thing called sin that filled up every single slot in the expenses column. And no matter what you did, you couldn't get free of it. There was no price that you could ever pay that would satisfy the debt that you owed to sin. And every man, woman, and child was born into that condition. We couldn't, we couldn't get out from under the load that we were under as a human race. And so Paul is telling us that Jesus did the most amazing thing. He wiped out that requirement. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements, the, the notice of the debt of sin that we carried. He wiped it out. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. Amen. He wiped it out, nailed it to the cross. That means that you and I can live free. Amen? We can live free. Verse 15 continues his thought. We're almost done. Verse 15 continues his thought. And he says that in addition to wiping out the handwriting of requirements, in addition to removing the debt of sin from our lives, he disarmed principalities and powers. 
That is the devil and his crew. Okay, just to make it simple. He disarmed the devil and his crew and made a public spectacle of them. The work that Christ did on the cross absolutely forever humiliated the powers of darkness. And he's made a spectacle of them. So, verse 16, he says, Don't let anybody judge you in food, in drink, in new moons, festivals, Sabbaths. He says, don't let these guys come in and tell you you got to be circumcised physically. Don't let them tell you that you can't eat shellfish. Don't let them tell you that you can't eat pork. Don't let them come in here and try to make you kosher as though that's what's going to make you acceptable to God. No, no, no. Jesus already did all the work that you could never do to make you acceptable to God. Jesus already did everything that was necessary for you to be called a son and a daughter of God. So don't try to get yourself right by doing all this stuff. Come back to the middle of the road. That's, what, that's literally, if I, had to, if I had to put sum it all up in a sentence of all of chapter 2, it's, hey guys, come back to the middle of the road. Some of you are over off in a ditch over here trying to get secret wisdom and secret revelation from the Gnostics. Some of you are over here trying to perfect yourself by keeping the Hebrew law. Cut that out. Come right back to the middle of the road because Jesus did everything that was necessary for you to be saved and for the enemy to be defeated and for you to live a victorious and joy-filled life in Christ. Stop trying to do it on your own in one of these ditches and come back to the middle of the road. Verse 20, he says, If you died with Christ... From the basic principles of the world. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to these regulations? In other words, do you think these things are going to save you? Or did Jesus do enough? Do you think celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles with the rest of the Jews is going to be enough to save you? Or did Jesus already do enough? Do you, do you think that celebrating the Feast of Trumpets is going to be enough to save you? Or did Jesus do enough? You think that having a Passover meal in your home is going to be enough to save you? You think that wearing, you know, wearing clothes that are not made from more than two linens is going to be enough to save you? Do you think all these 638 laws in Judaism is going to be enough to save you? Or did Jesus already do everything? You think you need some special secret revelation that's apart from God? Or is he the full expression of all of it? Do you already have everything that you need in Christ? These things, verse 23, this is the key. Get this. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. All the, all the theories and the... I, please get this. Please get this and I will close. All the theories and the ideas and the new ways of doing things, all the stuff you read about, all the posts on Instagram, all the books that are being written, all the ideologies that are out there have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom. You may think that you're wise because you can define your life by some book that somebody wrote. 
or some TED talk that somebody gave that gave you all this clarity. Oh, well, man, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it has the appearance of wisdom. But real wisdom is found in the Word of God. And there's, there, there's stuff that, that's being bombarding, or excuse me, there's stuff that's bombarding your mind and my mind that if we're not careful is going to pull us into a ditch. They're, no, they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Has the appearance of wisdom. But what is it? It's a bunch of false humility. It's neglecting of the body. But they're of no value against the, the true indulgences of the flesh. In other words, if you want to walk as God has called you to, if you want to live the life of Christ that he's called you to live, you have to do it in relationship to him. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was driving home. I thought, you know, to live the Christian life, to really live the Christian life, you must have a perpetual encounter with Christ. It's, it's not about the latest fad in philosophy. It's not about the latest whatever somebody says. I get, I get kind of irritated sometimes, but mostly I just shake my head and I go, wow. When I see Christians run to the world for all kinds of stuff that the Bible will help them with instantly. We overlook what God has already done and what he's already given and what he's already made available to us in search of some, some vain philosophy that's popular. The reality is, just give it a year. Give it five years. It'll be gone, and something new will come and take its place. Something new will come and take its place. You remember, <laughs> you remember the movie Da Vinci Code came out? You remember that movie? There was churches all over the place doing like Da Vinci Code-themed series. And I remember I heard a story of, a, of a, a, a preacher that I really respect. They were asking him his opinion. What do you think about that? What do you think about the Da Vinci Code? Because it appeared to, you know, criticize some of the basic tenets of Christianity, and it was frustrating to a lot of people. And they asked this guy, they said, what do you think about it? Should we do a, should we do a Da Vinci Code series at our church? And he said, you know, he said, when these things come around, he says, I just like to stay on the word. I just like to stay on the word. Well, the Da Vinci Code has come and gone. Okay, the arguments, the websites, the forums, all that, it's all, nobody cares about that anymore. There's something new to look after. There's some new fad philosophy that we got to chase after. Right? Paul's like, guys, don't you realize in Christ is the fullness of the Godhead? Don't you realize that in Jesus is everything you need and you're already complete in him? When are you going to tap into the realization that everything you need is already on the inside of you because Jesus is on the inside of you? If you doubt that or you're frustrated with that, you need to go back and look at it again and say, wait a minute, either, I got, either when I got saved, something supernatural happened that changed me from the inside, or it didn't. Yeah. 
There's no in-between. Either God changed you or he didn't. And if he didn't, there's hope. You can still get saved. Praise God. But if he did, and if you're a believer, and if you're saved, and if you're a child of God, everything you need is in him, and everything that is in him is in you. That's the revelation. It's the reality of the new creation. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, don't get me preaching now. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God. Everything that God put in you, the moment you got saved, is of God. He's placed his very nature on the inside of you. Why would we look here and there? Why would we run around trying to perfect our life outside of the person of Jesus? It's foolishness. And that's what these Colossian people were doing. And Paul, just like a dad, just comes and puts his arm around him and says, Guys, listen, come back over here. Come join me in the middle of the road. You're in a ditch. Let me, let me tow you out. Let me tow you out. I'll never forget... It was a dark, rainy night one night, and my wife was, was trying to get out of this parking lot, and she had her dad's truck, and she was, it was really, really hard to see, and she was trying to back out of this parking spot, and she ended up going into this ditch, and I remember when I got there, I was really I was scared for her. I thought, oh my gosh, something really bad happened, because the truck was like almost vertical. Do you remember? And the coolest thing happened. Her dad showed up with a toe strap and a Jeep. And it was just, I couldn't help her. I had a little Audi that had barely holding on to the road. It was rainy. I didn't have what I needed, but he did. And he showed up with a toe strap. And in five minutes, had us out of the jam. Had her out of the ditch. That's what Paul's doing here in chapter 2. And really the whole book of Colossians, but especially in this chapter, he's coming and he's just putting his arm around him like dad and saying, hey, let me get you out of the ditch. Let me help, let me help you out. Let me hook up my spiritual toe strap. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me hook up my spiritual toe strap and tow you out of this ditch. You bit down on Gnosticism and it pulled you in that direction. You bit down on Judaism and it pulled you in this direction. And you're, you're forgetting that the point of the whole thing is Jesus. So let me help you out. Let me pull you back right to the middle of the road. Stick with Jesus. He's the middle of the road. He's what you need. You think you need all this stuff, but you don't. You think you need the approval of men. You think you need the approval of women. You think you need this. You think you need that. You think you need status. You think you need to repack and, and revisit your whole philosophy of life, but you don't. If you've got Christ, you've already got everything you need. Don't get pulled. Let Papa Paul come and hook his winch to the bumper of your vehicle and pull you out of the ditch. If we keep the main thing, the main thing, if we keep Jesus in the center, then we won't get off track. We won't get off base. Our theology will remain sound. Like one preacher says, I love this quote. He says, Jesus is good theology. Je or no, excuse me. He says, Jesus is perfect theology. 
Keep your eyes on the Son of God. He's perfect theology. Amen. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.